If you can open your Bibles to the passage on Exodus 28. Well, I want to start by thanking Matt for reading for us. That's 63 verses that you've read in total. I just want to say at the outset that I wasn't responsible for scheduling you for reading today. <laughs> and for those of you who might have been complaining that we're going too slowly in Hebrews, what was it, five verses last week and uh, seven verses the week before, well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> the late comedian Mitch Hatberg has a funny story that he tells in his act. Sitting down for an on-air interview, a radio DJ asked him, so, who are you? And in that moment, he had to think, is this guy really deep? Or did I just drive to a wrong radio station? Well, that's exactly the question I want to ask you today. Who are you? And no, you didn't come to the wrong church. It's a simple question, but it's a big issue for our day and age, isn't it? This question of identity. So much of our debates and disagreements in the public square today is about who we are. What I'd like to do today is to provide you with a perspective from the Bible about who God intends for each one of us to be. It's not a complete picture because the Bible is so rich and varied and it provides many different perspectives as to who we're all meant to be. But what we're covering today is certainly a snapshot taken from a very important angle. And so hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll have a good idea of what God intends for you to be and for you to do. Welcome to Christ the King. We'll take a break this week from our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And we continue instead on a series that we started last summer where we look at a theme from a passage in the Bible, and then we see how that theme unfolds throughout the Bible. And the title of our sermon this morning is Thinking About Priests. Exodus 28 and Leviticus 9, truth be told, are not the most commonly preached passages in the Bible. But I think they hold for us a very important understanding of God's plan for each one of us. And I submit to you that it holds tremendous implications for what we are meant to be and how we are meant to live our lives today. Well, as you can well expect, we'll be covering quite a fair bit of ground and so we're moving at a slightly faster pace than usual. And so buckle up and I hope the sermon handout will help you follow along. Well, first the context. The Christian story is a story of redemption. It's about a God who created humans to, make, to have an intimate relationship with them. Uh, we see that in the Garden of Eden. And there we see God with Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day in the garden. The picture is one of intimacy between God and humans. But as you know, humans sinned. And because of that, we are told that they had to hide themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. We find that in Genesis chapter 3. And God's very first question to man in the Bible is, where are you? Where are you? And since then, God has been carrying out His plan to bring humans back to Him, to enjoy the intimacy that we once shared with God. But the problem is this, God is holy, and humans are sinful, and sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And so intimacy is an impossibility. And we learn in the book of Genesis that when things 
do get out of hand, God intervenes. Well, once he had to send a flood to wipe out sinful humans, with the exception of Noah and his family, well, God effectively pressed the reset button on planet Earth with that flood. Another time, he had to disperse humans by confusing their language so they couldn't come together to sin even more grievously. But these are all temporary fixes. You see, God's redemption plan to bring about his original purpose of an intimate relationship with his people was through a family, through Abraham and his family. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him to make him into a great nation. He would bless him and make his name great, give him offspring, land, and blessings. And as you fast forward through the book of Genesis, we see God's promise being fulfilled. Abraham's descendants, Israelites, became many, but they were in Egypt. And when we get to the start of the book of Exodus, we find Israel enslaved in Egypt. And so in keeping with his promise to Abraham, God raised Moses who led his people out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai. And in the Sinai wilderness, we now have the beginnings of a nation, a people freed. Israel was now poised to enter the promised land to claim it as God promised. But the fundamental problem remains. On the one hand, God desires an intimate relationship with his people. And you'll find many references in the Bible where God says to his people, I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell among you. But on the other hand, God is holy and humans are sinful. And sinful humans cannot come into the presence of a holy God. They cannot approach God safely. And so what was God's solution? Well, his solution was the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is the means by which sinful people can atone for their sins by offering the sacrifice of a substitute. And once having done that, they can be in fellowship with God. Which brings us to our passage in Exodus chapter 28. Keep your Bibles open to that page on Exodus 28. The first obvious question then is this. Who offers this sacrifice? All these sacrifices that have to be made, who's the one offering it? And the answer, the priest. But who is the priest? And the answer again is given in chapter 28, a chapter that describes the garments for the high priest and the priest. Basically, the chapter is saying, you want to know who is a priest? Look at what he wears. I think it was Mark Twain who said, clothes make a man. While that's certainly true in this chapter, the heading tells us what it's all about. Priest garments. And if you go straight to verse 4, we are told that the garment would comprise of six parts. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, which is basically a fancy name for a tunic that's worn under the robe, and then a turban and a sash. And if you look at your sermon handout, you'll see the six pieces of the priest's garment there. Well, starting from the inside, the high priest would wear the tunic, which was made of fine linen. It was probably held together by the embroidered sash. And on top of the tunic, he would have a blue robe, which had the colorful imitation pomegranates lining the hem of the robe, alternating with the golden bells. And then over the blue robe, he would have the ephod, which is a long sleeveless vest 
something like a, an apron held by a skillfully woven waistband. And a cloth breast piece was attached to the ephod and was adorned with gemstones. It had four rows on this uh, cloth breast piece, each with three precious stones. And each of these stones had engraved upon it the name of one of the tribes of Israel. The breast piece also contained the Urim and the Thummim, which was used in those days to seek God's guidance. We don't exactly know how it works, as we're not told. And on his head, the high priest wore a turban. The turban held a plate of pure shining gold, and on which is engraved the Hebrew words, Holy to the Lord. So that's what the high priest was meant to wear. Not something you want to wear on a hot Palestinian day, or something you want to wear when you're trying not to be noticed. But it's clearly important because one whole chapter is dedicated to it over here. Let me just make three observations in this chapter. First observation, chosen. We read in verse 1 that God tells Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with you, with him, from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So it is God who chooses the high priest and the priest. Moses doesn't get to choose and you don't volunteer for it. God chooses from his people, his priests. So that's the first point chosen. Second, holy. Holiness is key here. We're told in verse 2 that the garments are holy garments. Verse 3 tells us that Aaron's garments, uh, they are what consecrates him for priesthood. To consecrate is to make sacred, to make holy. And in verse 36, we're told that the gold plate attached to Aaron's turban proclaimed that he is holy to the Lord. Now, we need to understand this. Nothing in this chapter tells us if the high priest lived his life ethically, or he was a pious man, or that he led a good life. None of that. And of course, Aaron had to follow all of God's commandment about how he should go about making sacrifices. But Aaron's holiness, which essentially was his admission pass to enter the tabernacle, was imputed to him by his garment. His holiness was a status imputed to him because he wore the priest's garment. Thirdly, mediator. The priest is a mediator who represents his people to God. We see it in the ephod where an onyx stone is set on each of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod. And on each onyx stone is engraved the names of six tribes of Israel according to their birth order. These are called the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. We see that also in a breast piece. Like the ephod, the breast piece has 12 precious stones which bore the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when the high priest enters the tabernacle, he brings his people before the Lord on his shoulders and on his heart. He bears their burden and he secures their entrance into the Lord's presence. He represents them. And then we are told that the blue robe is hemmed with gold bells. And verse 35 tells us, It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into a holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Now you must be wondering what's that all about. 
while the bells are meant to tell God to let him know that the one coming into the most holy place of the tabernacle is the high priest and not someone else. Because if it's someone else, God will break out against them and strike them down. Now, obviously, God doesn't need the bell to know who's coming in. right? So the bell was really meant to be an audible reminder to the people that sinners cannot come before God without a mediator. And so this is what the priests and the high priests were meant to be. Chosen representatives reflecting the holy image of God and mediating on behalf of the people of God. So what do the priests do exactly? What does it mean to mediate? And for that, we turn to chapter 9 of the book of Leviticus. You can turn to page 82 for those in the Black Bible and 97 for the large print Bibles. Chapter 9 of Leviticus. Well, chapter 9 records essentially what is the first worship service for the Israelites. We can read this chapter and, and really not think very much about it. But what we have here is the sacrificial system that if it works, will be the way by which God can literally dwell among his people and have an intimate relationship with them. And the priests, as mediators, were going to bring that about by the sacrifices that they will offer for the people at the tabernacle. While the priests do play a number of roles in the Old Testament, we are told, they teach, they help discern God's will and so on. So on. But none is as important as their role in bringing together God and people through the sacrificial system. I won't go too much into the details of this chapter, but I, what I want to do is to summarize what's happening here with the sacrifices. In essence, this chapter provides the order by which the sacrifices were to be made. You see in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 8 to 11, you have that in your handout. The priest offers a sin offering for his own sin. And then verses 12 to 14, the priest offers a burnt offering for himself. Verse 15, the priest offers a sin offering for the people's sin. Verse 16 and 17, the priest offers a burnt offering for the people. 18.21, the priest offers a fellowship offering for the people. Verses 22 to 23, the priest blesses the people. Again, just two observations. Firstly, you may ask, why this order? Well, the priest is meant to represent God's people. He wants to be able to make a sacrifice, a sin offering to atone for the people. But to do that, he has first of all to atone for his own sin. And until he has done that, he can offer no sin offering for his people because he's one of them. Sinful and needing forgiveness as well. And in a sense, his inadequacy points us to the need for a better priest. You see where this is heading as we study the book of Hebrews. Secondly, as the commentator puts it, this order also reveals a movement from forgiveness to rededication to fellowship. God's anger was turned away from the people through the sin offering. Their sins were forgiven. And then the people rededicated or consecrated themselves to the Lord by the burnt offering. Uh, this is the costly offering. It's completely burnt up. And finally, the fellowship between God and his people is renewed by the fellowship or peace offering. And when that is done, the priest blesses the people. And we see in verse 23 that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
the burnt offering is consumed by the fire from the Lord, indicating that he has accepted their sacrifices. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces, prostrated in worship, which is surely the appropriate response. The appearance of God proves to the people that the Lord is indeed dwelling among them. Okay, now that we know who the priests are and, and what they do, so what? What's the big deal? Well, it was a big deal for the Israelites because there were two major implications for them. Well, first of all, because that's the only way that the Israelites could be forgiven of their sins. That's the only way that they can come to worship God the way that they did in Leviticus chapter 9. To witness the awesome sight of the glory of God appearing to all of them. To see the fire from God consuming the offerings. To know that God is dwelling again in their midst. The sacrifices were the only way that that could happen. Well, secondly, this priest was serving as an example for the Israelites as well. You see, God always intended for all of Israel, all of the Israelites to be priests as well, even before Aaron and his sons were consecrated as priests. Look with me at Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Exodus chapter 19, so on page 56 in the Black Bible and 67 in the Large Print Bible. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, and this is God speaking to Moses. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests right from the start. Aaron and his sons, who were the official priests that we saw here in Leviticus chapter 9, did not replace the people as priests. As the commentator puts it, they simply offered a more concentrated version of priestly life that would eventually be redistributed to all the people. Well, of course, not all the people of Israel can serve at the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, but all of them were expected to be holy. And the purpose of this visible holiness was to attract the attention of the other nations around them. You see, Israel was to be a priest to the nations, just as Aaron and his sons were priests to the people of Israel. Aaron and his sons mediated between the Israelites and God, Offering sacrifices bring about God's forgiveness to the people of Israel and preparing the people for the worship of God. And so in a similar fashion, Israel was meant to be the mediator pointing other nations to God, helping them recognize the one true and sovereign God, drawing them to God. And they succeeded. Sometimes. Remember when Joshua sent the spies across to Jericho as they were entering the Promised Land, and how Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, what did she tell the spies? You see that in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, I'll read that for you. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, the news of the God of Israel's sovereign power and his mighty deeds traveled to the people of, this, of Jericho. Pagans like Rahab were drawn to the God of Israel by what they were seeing happening with Israel. And in the case of Rahab the prostitute, you may well know what happened to her. She ended up being the ancestor to Jesus. Right? You see that in Matthew chapter 1. You see, because of what God was doing through Israel, Gentiles from other nations came to recognize the God of Israel and were drawn to Him. But sadly, this is more the exception than the rule. Over time, Israel's priests became unfaithful. We, read, uh, we can read this from prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah. And so did the people of Israel. Israel soon became a stench to the nations, and the Lord's name was profaned among the nations. And before long, worship had become merely a ritual. It didn't bring the Israelites closer to God or made a difference in the way that they lived. Israel became like all other nations around them. And that certainly was the case in the first century. The priests were corrupt, they were hypocritical. And the people were like sheep lost without a shepherd. And then Jesus came. The Apostle John writes for us in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came and dwelt among His people, but His people did not receive Him. They crucified him. And when Jesus was crucified, when he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, he was introducing a new covenant. We covered that last summer. This new covenant where he's now both our high priest and our sacrifice. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 27. It's worth, worth turning to that page. It's on page 944 in the Black Bible and 1106 in the Large Print Bibles. Hebrews chapter 7. Starting from verses, uh, verse 23. And this is what the author of Hebrew writes. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, as in Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for, him, for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, 
when he offered up himself. You can see what this means, don't you? No more need for the Old Testament sacrifices, and so no more need for the Old Testament priesthood, because Jesus is a better sacrifice and a better priest. Okay, you may ask now, then what's that got to do with those of us living in 21st century in Toronto? Well, as it turns out, plenty. Because those of us who have put our trust in Jesus now belong to the Holy Priesthood. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That's on page 953 if you want to turn to your Black Bible and 1117 in the Lush Green Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, the living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, we who have put our trust in Jesus, Christians, we are now all part of a holy priesthood. And there are many implications for us, but I'll just list two for you. Well, firstly, Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross, becomes our mediator. We saw that in the Hebrews passage a moment ago. By his sacrificial death, our sins can now be forgiven, and we can now come before the presence of God. And in fact, as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus not only makes it possible for us to come into the presence of God, he also constantly interceding for us before God. Secondly, Jesus is serving as an example for us as well. Like the Israelites, we, we who are Christians, we who have experienced our own exodus, from slavery to sin, we have all now become priests. And we have put on the priest's garment because we have put on Christ. And this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And because we have put on Christ, we are holy. Okay, at this juncture, I just want to make an important digression. Okay? When we say we are holy because we put on Christ, think of this holy as a status, a positional aspect of holiness. So putting on Christ or being in Christ imputes on us the status of being holy because of what Jesus Christ did, not because of anything that we've done. But because we have received Him as Lord and Savior, we have now become holy in God's sight. And positionally speaking, that has become our status. And this is why we can draw near to God. And this is why we can pray to Him. This is why this is what someone, some of us would mean when we say we are, we've been saved. And that's what we are, saved. We've become children of God. We can come into His presence. But being imputed a status of holiness does not mean that there's no need for a lifelong process of progressive holiness. Let me say that again. Being imputed a status of holiness does not mean that there's no need for a lifelong process of progressive holiness. You see, God wants us to grow in our holiness, to be transformed, to be more and more like Christ. And in fact, expect that this growth in holiness 
will require effort and exertion on our part. In the New Testament, we are urged to fight the good fight. We are to strive to enter through the narrow gate. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to press on and strain forward. And we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, and self-control, and so on. Instantly, all those are verses from the New Testament. As one theologian puts it, in Christ, every believer has a once-for-all positional holiness, and from this new identity, every Christian is commanded to grow in the ongoing for your whole life process of holiness. You see, we need to be who we are. And holy is who we are. And holy is what we must become. I know there's a lot of talk nowadays about how important it is to be authentic. To be authentic is to be real, to be genuine, to act out one's true faith and belief and nature, to be true to oneself. Apparently, we all should be authentic. And in fact, if we are not, we are committing probably the worst sin, the sin of hypocrisy. I'm not too sure I fully agree with that. I'm still very much a work in progress. There's still a fair bit of the old self in me. I can guarantee you that you don't want me to be authentic, to act out those bits of the old self in me. But thanks be to God, I am holy because of what Christ did. And I'm working on my progressive holiness as well, working to be more like Jesus. And to do that, I will continue to work at acting out in ways that are not a bit at all like my old self, so that I can be more like my new self in Jesus. And that's going to take a lot of effort. And the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement and the accountability from all of you in church to help me to be more like Jesus. I do this because I'm a priest, not in the Anglican sense, because you know I'm not a Dane yet, but as a priest in a New Testament sense. My purpose is that by growing in my holiness, my visible holiness will attract the attention of others around me. So that as they are drawn to me, I can take the opportunity to share Christ with them. I can point them to Jesus because that's what priests do. Let me conclude. I started out by asking the question, who are you? I hope by now that the answer is clear to you. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are priests who have been sanctified and made holy by the blood of Christ. We have put on Christ. And we know one of the most important things that priests do is to offer sacrifices. And so my question for you now, as we conclude, is what sacrifices are we offering? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You may want to turn to that. As a verses, two verses are well worth memorizing. Page 891 in the Black Bible and 1049 in the Large Print Bibles. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and, 
acceptable and perfect. A living sacrifice. And we know Paul is not referring to the sin offering because Jesus has already offered that for all people, for all times, past, present and future. But rather, it is the burnt offering that we are to offer. It is about how we are offering up our lives to God on a daily basis. And as you know, the burnt offering is always burnt totally. So when we offer the burnt offering, we are offering ourselves totally to God, committing ourselves to live for Him every day. We give ourselves totally to God. We don't give the leftovers. And one way that we will know that we are giving ourselves totally to God as a living sacrifice is this, our unwillingness to be conformed to this world, to the patterns of this world. We will not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. Is that how we are living our lives today? In our universities, in our workplace, in our communities, in our families? Or are we so conformed to the world that others would find it hard to tell us apart from the world? Will we examine ourselves this week to see which is the case for us? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.